I will start out to admit that this gospel passage has come to mean so much more to me in these last years. As I reflect on my life and I see how um, certain things that seemed extremely unpleasant at the time, extremely confused about those happenings, or certain heights of happiness uh, being reached, and, and why is it that life is this way, or, or whatever, and discovering that, it, just as Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Was it not necessary that I should endure such things in order to experience God's love? And uh, the phrase came to me uh, during uh, retreat, and, and it's a phrase of, it's modified, of course, and the, the old story is God writes straight and crooked lines, but I'm realizing he writes very straight and extremely crooked lines. That if we, in the midst of it, all we look at is that crooked line, that the twists and the turns that, that our lives take, it doesn't make sense. But if we take the step from eternity, or take, take a look at our lives from eternity, all of a sudden we see a straight line between our conception and eternity. And I think that might be one thing for us to ponder, but there's so much more here to ponder, not only because it's a long uh, gospel passage, but because it is so rich, so deep. First, I would point out, St. Luke doesn't give us this little detail, but Emmaus is seven miles west of Jerusalem. So uh, Cleopas and his companion, Cleopas, by the way, means uh, glory of the Father, for those that are curious. This is the only time he's mentioned in the scriptures. But he and his companion are heading west, heading into the setting sun. Now, that might not mean a lot for us, but I think it's a statement of where they are. They're looking at death itself. The setting sun is a sign, of course, of passing. They're, all is gone, all is, all is bad, woe is me kind of thing. Uh, this movement, this Jesus is dead, so the movement that he founded might be, might be dead too. But even worse than that, the main gate that they would have most likely exited of Jerusalem would have taken them right by Calvary, right by the spot where Jesus was crucified, where Jesus was buried. And they're leaving town just when it is getting good. Like last week, we heard of St. Thomas, who was not there that first Easter evening. This is that first Easter afternoon. They've already heard the stories that the tomb is empty. Women have come back to us. Uh, the, John and, and Peter have run to the tomb, and, and there they, they saw the tomb was empty. But we're leaving town. I, don't, I keep asking myself, is FOMO only a recent thing? This fear of missing out, is that only a recent phenomenon? Was it, what, didn't it happen back back then, too, that people were afraid? Well, maybe it didn't because we didn't have instant communication, instant uh, satisfactions, that we didn't have Instagram. You know, we didn't see the pictures. We didn't see everything back. Even, you know, when I was young, it wasn't so quick. Well, Polaroids, but you had to wait five minutes for it to develop, even. But they're leaving town. And yet, they're discussing all these things. I pointed out uh, last night, and I, I continue, I, I didn't think about this, but uh, as Jewish uh, men and women on Sabbath, the Saturday, they would not have been allowed to travel. So the apostles and the disciples were most likely gathered in different pockets, gathered uh, to celebrate Sabbath after that sacred Passover. 
And they would have talked and talked about what is happening. Jesus has been crucified. He's buried. What, what is happening? They would have spent all day in conversation about what was happening. And they're still wondering. And Jesus, at that point, accompanies them. He comes up to them. He's veiled from their uh, recognition. I, uh, St. Luke tells us that very clearly. But I, I get the sense, even if he hadn't been veiled from them, even if he hadn't prevented them from recognizing him, they probably wouldn't have recognized him because he's still in that tomb as far as they're, as far as they're concerned. The tomb that they could have checked into, that they could have stopped in and said, gee, hmm, something's happening. And he asked them, what are you talking about? Well, I, we had a retreat master once said, what stone have you been under? What, indeed, where, where has he been? Everyone in Jerusalem has been talking about these things. Everyone's heard. Everyone saw. Or, or if they didn't see, they, they probably talked to somebody. This, this Sunday afternoon already, they would, the, the story would have been there in the whole town. Jerusalem isn't that big. What, what do you mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus of Nazarene, a prophet, mighty in power and, and word and deed. How, how he was crucified. What do you mean you don't know what's going on? If anyone knew, of course, it was Jesus. And if anyone knew the why, it was Jesus. But he allows them. Oh, he, he does call them to task. Oh, how foolish you are. A slow of heart to believe. And he begins to reveal to them everything that pertains to him. A seven-mile walk would take about probably two hours, right? And a nice, uh, slow saunter. But two hours is not even close enough to be able to explain everything in scriptures that revealed Jesus. Because once we begin to realize that Jesus is in the Old Testament, we begin to realize he's in every verse, every word of the Old Testament. Oh, maybe not literally that, that we look there and there he is, but we see him throughout. And we can spend hours upon hours upon hours, maybe in the first chapter of the first book of Genesis. We could spend hours and hours discussing where is Jesus there, but it was enough that they, they are, they're enthralled by this message. And, and I can see the, the, the dust that had swirled around their feet uh, while they were discussing before Jesus came, now suddenly lessening, that their footsteps were getting lighter, and that instead of being confused, there was a certainty that somehow this was all going to be, turn out for good. But even still, as they get to the town, there's a desire for more. It's not enough. That discussion of two and a half hours or whatever it was, was not even close enough. Stay with us, Lord. It's nearly evening. Day is almost over. Even if you're going next door, that's too far away from us. Stay with us. We want to know more, is the sense that I, I think they're, they're trying to get. They just don't want to come out and say it. Give us more. And of course, we hear it, that while he was at table, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. Those four verbs during this year, or the next two years, three years perhaps, 
as we are undergoing this Eucharistic revival, this understanding of what, we, what a great gift we have been given, those four verbs are the important ones. Anytime they appear in scriptures together, there's something Eucharistic happening. We heard them on, well, modified, of course, in St. John's Gospel, but we'll, we hear them in the multiplication stories. How he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And each ate, and they gathered up the fragments. And we hear it at the Last Supper. The Last Supper accounts in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Last Supper account of 1 Corinthians, written by St. Paul. How he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And especially the word broke, or breaking. That word is only used in that context. It's not used anywhere else. It's not used for the breaking of dawn, or the breaking of a twig, or the breaking of this or that. It's only in the context of breaking bread. It's a sacred word, therefore. Anywhere it appears, we should have automatically that Eucharistic connection. And the apostles, uh, the, or the disciples, Cleopas and his companion, whoever that was, know that. When they see the breaking of the bread, their eyes are suddenly unveiled. And they recognize Jesus, who is immediately removed from their sight. He's no longer there. And then they begin to acknowledge what was going on within them. Were not our hearts burning while he spoke to us? Were not, not our hearts burning while he revealed the scriptures to us? After all this, there's so much more, but were our hearts not burning? And as long as it took them to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, they turn around, running towards the rising sun, now with hope although the sun was setting on that evening. I can see them making a PR, a personal record, as they went back. I am willing to bet they made it back in 50 minutes or less. That they now had excitement. Now they had clarity. Now they understood that it had to happen this way, that it was necessary. And so they get back to Jerusalem and they hear the message, the Lord has truly been raised, he's appeared to Simon. And they can say, yes, we know. We've seen him too in the breaking of the bread. Notice it wasn't in the explanation of the scriptures, it was in the breaking of the bread. What does this message all have for us? I think this, uh, I see it as, as almost a parable for us in the world. We live in a world that has heard the message of Jesus Christ's resurrection We've heard, we live in a world that that knows all these pieces, all these scattered little pieces of our faith, but they're all disconnected from each other out in the world, not in the church. That we hear all these pieces, you know, how many people celebrated Easter without understanding what Easter really means. We think it means eggs and bunnies, maybe ducks, and it means so much more, we know this. They've heard that message of Jesus' resurrection, perhaps, that, that there's this man who, who some say was a god, who, who was raised from the dead, but, you know, what does that mean? What, what does it all mean? And they're, they're asking themselves, and Jesus would accompany them, would desire to accompany them, and to explain to them what this all means. And we have those people, too, that understand uh, that, that the scriptures reveal this to us. And so they study and they study and they study the scriptures and their hearts are burning within them. Have you ever met somebody like that? 
Oh, it's wonderful. They are the most delightful people to be around because they know Scripture. And their hearts are burning. And they're burning. And they're burning. And I'd like to suggest that without something more, all they have is a perpetual case of spiritual heartburn. That's all there is. It's this burning. But what do we do with it? And like Cleopas and the companion, we're not our hearts burning. Stay with us. Stay with us, Lord. More is needed. And what's the more? We know what the more is as Catholics. We have it every time we come to Mass. It is the Eucharist. It is the breaking of the bread. It's there that we encounter our risen Lord. Not just hear about him. Yes, he is present in the scriptures. But he's sacramentally present in the Eucharist. That he makes himself present. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. That he gives himself to us. And if we truly have our hearts burning because we've encountered him in scriptures, when we receive him in the Eucharist, and even if it's just in his presence, for those who are unable to receive for whatever reason, being in his presence, recognizing him in the breaking of the bread, suddenly our hearts can burn without being consumed. Our hearts can burn and that we, we have the fullness and we understand the fullness and we can, we can say there's something great here, that the Lord has truly appeared to us and is, he is risen from the dead. And the image that keeps coming to mind for what that looks like comes from Exodus. If you remember the encounter of Moses as he's left Egypt the first time, he's running away because he murdered an Egyptian guard, and the Hebrews understand and recognize that he's killed somebody. He rushes out, and there he encounters Zipporah and his, her family. There he encounters the burning bush. If you remember the story, God speaks from the bush, tells him to take off his sandals for the ground he's standing upon is sacred. And he sees that the bush is burning, yet not consumed. It's burning, but not consumed. How is that? What's the presence of God? That we are called to be burning bushes in this world. That we are the ones who are called to walk with others who are confused, to walk with others who are trying to interpret what Scripture means to them, to be the burning bush, the presence of Christ, filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, filled with Him, that we can accompany them and help them to understand the burning of their hearts will find consummation only in the Eucharist, only in the sacraments. That the gift that the church has Yes, it's reserved to those who have prepared their hearts and minds to receive him. But it's a gift that is open and offered to all. To all. That there should not be a world divided by light and darkness. A world divided by, by those who know him and those who know things about him. Well, there's a major difference there. As we come this day, we ask the Lord to help us to remove any heartburn that is not consumed by his presence in the Eucharist. That we would understand more and more and more what a great gift this Eucharist is. That it allows us to be burning bushes in the world instead of just consuming our hearts, hurting us, 
That those who are lost, those that are confused, those that are strained, those that are wandering, may find somebody who will lead them into a deeper union and communion with us.